What does the civil rights movement, Chicago's jazz scene, and the fight for racial and education justice have in common? Well, a lot, actually. Those are the themes that bind today's special guests, contributing authors, and Chicago natives Ernie Fagey, president of Public Advocacy for Kids, and Dr. John Jackson, president of the Schott Foundation for Public Education. Today, together, we'll try to make sense of America's historic problems and America's historic promise. Thanks for listening. I'm Joe Bishop. This is Our Children Can't Wait, a podcast about the systems and structures that keep our kids from flourishing. Each week, I invite you to unpack these issues together with a remarkable national network of scholars and changemakers. They share solutions to a new roadmap through honest and insightful conversations. Our Children Can't Wait is also a book from Teachers College Press and is now available to purchase on ourchildrencantwait.com. For those of you who don't know, as I said, I'm Joe Bishop. I'm bringing you the incredibly gifted souls I was lucky enough to talk to for the book, Our Children Can't Wait. Today, we've got a couple of thought leaders, advocates, and activists, each with their own experience of Chicago and the civil rights movement. I'm Arnold Fagey, and I'm president of Public Advocacy for Kids. It's a nonprofit uh, C4 organization that focuses solely on federal ed- public education and child advocacy policy. Good afternoon, John Jackson, President and CEO of the Schott Foundation for Public Education. At Schott, we're a public fund that resource grassroots organizations to work on systemic change that leads to providing all students an opportunity to learn. In that work, we use both a race and gender um, equity frame, as well as a race and gender justice frame, which speaks to many of the issues outlined in the uh, book. So I'm I'm glad to be a part of this conversation. How did your upbringing in Chicago shape how you think about policy or your role in changing policy and making the world a better place? My early experiences, both in a large city, but also in a very highly segregated community, 90 miles around the lake from Chicago, along with the work that I was able to do with Senator Robert Kennedy and a lot of the a lot of the equity soldiers in what we call the Second Reawakening. But I grew up in the North. It wasn't the South. And I grew up in one of the segregated uh, cities in the country. And as I will have to say as students, everybody's talking about CRT and worrying about students getting getting their uh, feelings hurt. We as students really understood that there was a privileged section of Chicago. And then there was the South Side where I grew up that was sort of the community that was not very privileged and not have a lot of opportunity. And some of the most difficult school systems had some of the worst health care. I will tell you, I think about that every day. It, uh, those early experiences really do change your, uh, change your life along with all of the mentors that I've had along the way that reinforces the issue of equity and voice and full participation in a democratic society. And Arnie, you share with me your, your activism with your dad and your family was always involved in, in labor organizing. Could you say more about that? I went to union meetings a lot, and that was an education in itself. My father was part of a, a new union called United Electrical, which organized uh, white-collar professionals, but was one of the first unions to begin to focus on integrated, uh, not only membership, but apprenticeships as well. 
I can remember very distinctly that there was a lot of white pushback against a union that dared to integrate, especially in a city like Chicago, which was so segregated. So my family was involved in Little League. My family was involved in volunteerism. Even though we were from a big city, our neighborhood was like a little neighborhood. And I was went to public school, Catholic school. The kids uh, walked on the other side of the street. But when we came home, we all, we all worked together. Uh, and of course, I lived in the neighborhood around Comiskey Park and grew up a White Sox fan. And that was an all-white neighborhood where Mayor, da- Mayor Daley lived. And the reason I bring all of that up is because uh, it, none of that goes unnoticed when you're growing up. It really does shape the kind of emotion uh, mm-hmm. along with the intellectual work that you do. So I was steeped, I will have to say, in education. And I mm-hmm. also remember, this is sort of the, uh, the musical and entertainment awakening of Chicago. We would go to see Ella Fitzgerald. We'd go to see West Montgomery. We'd go to see Oscar Peterson. We were, we were raised on, on jazz in some of the great jazz uh, nightclubs along Cottage Grove and 47th. So I distinctly remember that. And it, it gives me a good feeling as we're working through this current atmosphere. I, I call that period of time the second awakening. So speaking of awakenings, let's, let's go to John. John, you've been focused on changing people, systems, and policies in the name of justice and equity your entire career. Uh, Where was that passion born? Well, like my friend Arnie, it it started growing up on the south side of Chicago and uh, Jeffrey Manor. I attended Chicago public schools, went to uh, Frank L. Gillespie Elementary School, which is, you know, right 95th Street. In many respects, I was fine in Chicago public schools. My parents were uh, divorced when I was two. When I was 12, I got in a little trouble and my mother told me I was smelling myself. So she uh, made me move with my uh, dad in the South Suburbs, attended a public school there. And while I was fine academically in Chicago public schools, I was not in the South Suburban uh, school, public school system. And for me, that was the awakening or the introduction to the um, inequities that exist based on zip code, based on location and that was the the start of an awakening for me concerning the importance of resource equity. Now, I would later go on to Xavier University in New Orleans, which is an HBCU, and I studied political science and began to think how law and education um, came together. So at each point in my uh, own personal development, I could see the alignment between law and education and how policies and practices that were put in place, some of which you know, Arnie referenced it in the city of Chicago. My grandmother attended Progressive Baptist Church, which is right next to Comiskey Park. And I remember when uh, Mayor Daly, the father, uh, wanted to move the church or move the congregation to another church that was more segregated. The uh, pastor at the time, R.E. Brown, pushed back against it, and he forced the city to literally move the church across the street next to Comiskey Park because they wanted to build the Dan Ryan Expressway. So these battles around segregation, these battles around resource equity are deeply rooted in Chicago. And for most who come from the city of Chicago, definitely the South Side, it has a way of opening your eyes, opening your voice concerning those things related to resource equity and racial justice. So let me take a second and give you some proper introductions. Arnie Fagey is the president of Public Advocacy for Kids. 
a D.C.-based organization that focuses on federal public education and child advocacy policy. Arnie brings over 40 years of public and nonprofit experience as a teacher and a principal. He was staff assistant to the late Senator Bobby Kennedy, a Vietnam Associated Press war reporter, and the governmental relations director for the National PTA. Dr. John Jackson is president and CEO of the Schott Foundation for Public Education. Their public foundation focused on resourcing racial and education justice organizations and campaigns. John is a former lecturer of race, gender, and public policy at Georgetown, and he was the senior policy advisor in the Office for Civil Rights at the U.S. Department of Education. So to better understand why these two guys, why Chicago, and what all this has to do with education policy, let's just catch everyone up. We're going to take a quick bird's eye view of the path of race and racial dynamics in America post-Civil War. Historians refer to the period before and after the end of slavery as Reconstruction, but it's a period we are still living in as a country. The immediate post-Civil War time brought us to the Jim Crow era, a time when laws codified racial segregation in America. Then fast forward to Brown versus the Board of Education, a landmark Supreme Court decision that deemed separate but equal unconstitutional. And so, to the civil rights struggles in the 1960s around voting, economic justice, and opportunity. More recently, we've seen the tragic murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Arbery, among a host of others, spark a new movement in Black Lives Matter and a new generation of leaders of the civil rights movement. The path of progress has often been elusive, sporadic, and met with periods of strong backlash. John, put, putting on your the attorney hat, give us a, the significance of the Brown v. Board decision in terms of how we think about policy today for folks who aren't as familiar or they've heard Brown v. Board. Could you give us kind of a quick overview of, of what it is and, and its significance or maybe limitations even? You know, prior to Brown v. Board, the law of the land was Plessy v. Ferguson that said separate but equal was constitutional. And over a number of decades prior to Brown, you would see predominantly black communities try to push states and localities to hold up to the equal part while they lived separate from their neighbors, separate from their uh, white counterparts. Um, In fact, it was Charles Hamilton Houston who was the uh, first African-American to be a part of Harvard Law School, who put together a strategy to challenge separate but equal. And he would go around the South and he would look at the school districts. And inevitably, he found that in none of those places were the states making or the districts making separate equal. It was subpar resources, Subpar teaching, subpar materials, separate was never equal. So Charles Hamilton Houston, in many respects, who served as the uh, director of the NAACP uh, legal team, he brought in a a young attorney by the name of Thurgood Marshall. And it was Charles Hamilton Houston who actually trained Thurgood Marshall. And Thurgood Marshall would then continue that strategy, um, which eventually, as we know, led to Brown versus the Board of Education. Interesting enough, 
When Thurgood Marshall initially thought about arguing the Brown case, he again wanted to make the case that the district should really push to make equal the resourcing for young kids in separated schools. And someone told him that if you've never seen this happen before, why are you arguing separate but equal is constitutional? And he made the shift and actually argued that separate but equal was unconstitutional. Mm. And that was the genesis of Brown v. Board of Education. And um, with Brown, we began to see the ability to not only challenge separate but equal in education, but in transportation and housing. And some might even say Brown v. Board was more impactful in the transportation space within the housing space more than it has been within the education space. I often say that Brown, in many respects, was a first down, not a touchdown for our young people. Because a few years later, in San Antonio versus Rodriguez, the Supreme Court was asked whether education is a fundamental right which means that the resourcing that goes from the federal level to the districts had to ensure that there was some level of equity. The Supreme Court in that decision said that education was not a fundamental right, which in many respects was a setback. But Brown v. Board of Education was transformative in the lives of young people in the lives of family, both in transportation and housing and in other areas. And it also helped in education, but we still have work to do today, as we know. Arnie, so you were writing down notes furiously as John was giving us, as a civil rights attorney, kind of the, the background on, on Brown v. Board. What, what were you writing down? First of all, I definitely agree with John that Brown v. Board had major impacts in housing and employment. We still have work to do. I've always said that the core of Brown v. Board was housing. If uh, if you can't move across borders, and don't forget school district boundaries are designed to keep some kids in and some kids out. We haven't made much progress around school district boundaries, and that, that in some way has manifested vouchers and kids moving across school district boundaries to charter schools, which uh, our organization really believes that it divests charters and vouchers divest from our public education system and making equities really worse. Brown v. Board, by the way, we're celebrating, it was decided in 1954, probably one of the one of the worst decisions of the court to implement Brown v. Board was uh, a quote that says, with all deliberate speed, which basically was a, a code word and a to the South that, that they could uh, resist desegregation. So I was writing down the, this issue of today, mm-hmm. where we take a look at the work that Gary Orfield has done, which Erica Frankenberg at Penn State has done, and she's one of the authors, she's one of the writers of the, uh, one of the chapters in your book. We have a separate and unequal school district. You can't have a separate district and have it equal. It's not compatible. But when you take a look at the increase in in school segregation, numbers that go back to 1967 and 1968, when we started keeping data around desegregation integration, I will say that it was uh, Lyndon Johnson that uh, put together NIE, the National Institute of Education, also the National Center of Educational Statistics, that began collecting statistics uh, related to uh, both racial and, uh, and, and gender data. We have a school system today, national school system, that basically is violating the Brown v. Board law, but the courts have gone to sleep. Uh, started with Billiken versus Bradley, which is a, a court case that uh, after I left Chicago and after the assassination of Robert Kennedy, we were uh, we were all disenthralled and we were we were all wiped out and we were all disillusioned as young people. 
And I went to Michigan in a school district right around the lake from Chicago, which is one of the most segregated small school districts in Michigan. But there are other districts like Flint, like uh, Battle Creek, like Muskegon Heights, like Lansing, that were also desegregated. And they all had court orders to desegregate. Uh, and I decided that I needed some uh, I, I decided I needed some action in my life, and I applied for and got the director of desegregation of this one school district. And I will tell you that I was more fearful of my life because of the resistance of the nine all-white school districts that was um, integrated into, by court order, uh, with uh, action by the NAACP, National Urban League, and other uh, minority rights organizations. I had actually parents, white parents, come into schools with, uh, at that time, 16 gay shotguns and said, my kids are not going to integrate. My kids are not going to go to the... But there was a belief. I had a superintendent of the school board that said, we're going to make this work. And sort of the moral of that story is that the violence that we see today is nothing new. Yep. Lynchings in the South is nothing new. Uh, defiance against Ruby Bridges going to the New Orleans public school, going to the Arthur B. France public school in New Orleans. Arthur and Lucy, uh, Vivian Malone, University of Alabama. We can name we can name all of these heroes, and they're wi black women heroes who carried a lot of the civil rights movement on their back. There was violence on campus. There was guns on campus. There was protests on campus, and I, I will have to say that probably higher ed has done a better job of integrating their institutions, even though the real blockade is the cost of tuition, mm -hmm. which um, which confines a lot of kids uh, to uh, alternative pathways where they should go to college, actually. And uh, I mean, that's, uh, so everywhere you look, there is sort of this defiance, this racial defiance, now gender defiance, now LGBTQ defiance, so that every time you try to expand rights, especially racial rights, this resistance that we see today is nothing new. So those of us who are old, Joe, take a look at this at a larger perspective and said, you know, if you take a look at the 60s, we had political assassinations. We assassinated a president. We assassinated Medgar Evers. I still miss Medgar. I still miss Martin Luther King. I, had, I worked for a senator who was assassinated. Uh, so, you know, the violence that we see today uh, and this resistance is, is nothing new. What will sustain the effort is people like John mm -hmm. uh, and other colleagues who will, uh, who will do the same thing we did during the last awakening. And that is mobilize and organize and speak out. And if that doesn't happen, I, I, I fear that we're going to go deeper into a, a, a more systemic uh, racial society. We're going to dig deeper into examples of how the civil rights movement has shaped education policy and how we can get our head around putting all these words into action. I would say one, vote, two, vote, three, vote. Elections present opportunities and they present consequences. What we can do and critically who's doing it right coming up in just a second. Our Children Can't Wait is the book I wrote, and I made this podcast to have a conversation with you, precisely you, and so we can keep the conversation going and hear what you think about the ideas brought up by this podcast. You can email me at joe, J-O-E, at ourchildrencantwait.com. I'd love to hear from you. 
Our Children Can't Wait podcast is a production sponsored by the Center for the Transformation of Schools at UCLA. And the book's publisher is Teachers College Press. Funding for today's podcast comes from the Stewart Foundation and the National Education Association. It's so amazing to hear in particular how formative your role is as a DSEG director at school district. There's so many parallels from, from your time then to today. To make a, a pivot here, and you kind of set the stage for this, you and Arnie, you and John say, we find ourselves at the intersection of America's historic problem and America's historic promise. John, what does that mean to you as we look forward? What, what do we need? Well, for me, I think when you look at the promise, you look at a country that is more diverse than ever. And within the midst of that diversity presents great opportunities, great opportunities as a culture, uh, great opportunities as a democracy, great opportunities for our economy. If we're able to invest in each individual so that their God-given potential can be birthed and contribute to overall society and overall humanity. And with the country's positioning, we could serve as stronger global citizens. Now, at the same time, the problem side of it is, while Arnie is correct that much of what we're seeing today isn't new, we seem to be moving back to a point where individuals and some elected officials are willing to sacrifice our democracy in order to uphold segregation and racist views. Prior to 1865, there were those who wanted to tear apart the United States, and that's why the Civil War was fought um, in many respects, part of the reason, to maintain the United States, and that, that battle was won. So for more than a century, We saw elected officials who, even within the frame of their uh, racist views, they were willing to support some level of democratic values. Even when uh, Governor Faubus did not want to desegregate the schools, um, you still had an Eisenhower who was willing to federalize the Arkansas National Guard and send them to support Daisy Bates and the Little Rock Nine integrating Central High School. Where we see today, there there's a likelihood that a governor may not take those steps. And we, we just left a president who likely, and President Trump, who likely would not have um, engaged the federal government in protecting the rights of, of those young people to be educated in any school. That's the major threat that we exist. Our democracy right now is being threatened. The very nature of our young girls and women's rights are being threatened. Our constitution is being threatened, all in the sake of maintaining some level of white superiority. And that's that's a huge threat that those of us of all races and creeds and background who, who believe in equity, who believe in uh, the humanity of each and every uh, individual, we are being tested in this moment. And we can't wait to respond. The urgency is now. We can't wait for tomorrow to do what's to fight a battle that's being fought today. The urgency is now. The promise exists, but we've got to address the problems that are right in front of us. Arnie, what, what would you say is your follow-up to that about the state of our democracy? I couldn't agree with John Moore. When we wrote this chapter, uh, there, there's always a tendency for the political system to take the path of least resistance. I consider that testing was a path of least resistance. I contend that 
No Child Left Behind was, a, was an easy path uh, where we tested and provided data but never provided the resources. But when we took a look at the challenges, at the current challenges, which I think are even greater than the challenges that we faced during uh, the second reawakening during the 60s and the early 70s, we came to the conclusion that democracy was the issue. It, actually, it was Jefferson that talked about uh, the fact that there's an intersection between an enlightened citizenry and democracy. And uh, mm. uh, there's a fissure, and that's been rent apart. And we would talk about before and after the Civil War, and before and after mm. Reconstruction, before and after Jim Crow, and before and after the Second Awakening. Each of those times, we had an opportunity to get the equity piece right. And each of those times, we went back. Not totally, but we didn't take advantage of that opportunity that John talked about. The problem is that we are at a tipping point. We can't wait because we didn't solve many of the problems uh, of the past uh, that were presented to us, by the way. Uh, I totally agree. Uh, we, we made, we've made progress. The other piece is, and I, I think about it a lot, my organization focuses on the national level because we think that no good can come of state rights. Mm -hmm. And we're moving in the direction of state rights. Uh, redistricting, especially voting patterns and all kinds of strategies to oppress voting. That was the big issue. That was the big issue in the Voting Rights Act of 1965 and also the Civil Rights Act of 1964. You know, I conclude that issues such as equity, school funding, teacher shortages, and by the way, if we can't get the teacher piece right, we can't get the equity piece right. That's how important teachers are. We can't, and we have so many good teachers that haven't left our school system, we've got to find a way to, to invest. When we talk about college tuition, in 2001, the states contributed about 16% to higher education. Their state now is down to 12%. They pass the, they pass the cost on to students so that it, it's much more difficult for poor disadvantaged students to get into, uh, uh, into college. And the last piece is we somehow have fallen into a crisis mode. Mm -hmm. This is not only true of education, but it's true of housing, it's true of climate, uh, that instead of creating infrastructures that assure that kids succeed, or that we have a great climate, or that we expand opportunity for full citizenship, uh, we often respond when there's a crisis. But we have a political system that doesn't have the, uh, that doesn't have the capacity to look forward instead of looking backward, and as a result, we're always putting out fires or putting in Band-Aids, like Florida now uh, is allowing veterans without certification to teach in classrooms for five years. Uh, college students without any preparation are going to be teaching special education kids in those schools that are short. Those are all Band-Aid solutions. And I want to go back to John's piece of we've got to take advantage of the opportunity we have because I'm not so sure, John, uh, and I don't think I'm being histrionic. I'm not so sure our kids or our country are going to have another chance at this opportunity. That's, that's how severe, vicious, I really think that this current period of time is in. I'm reassured uh, that there are a lot of school districts and a lot of parents, a lot of communities that are coming together. And, but what we would like to have is equal voice. We don't want some parents pushing their curriculum pushing their banned books on other parents who want the books in their schools. We've got to figure out uh, what equitable leadership looks like so that we can bring a divided community back together around its public schools. If we don't, we'll lose not only our public schools, but we'll lose that enlightened citizenry that Jefferson talked about. Arnie, you and John have highlighted the fragility of this moment 
for our country, for our schools, for our young people. As we've jumped from the history to, to this moment, where do we go from here in a path forward? Because uh, it, it is overwhelming when you think about what could be and, and where we are. Let, let's start with John. John, where, where do we go from here? For listeners who are kind of taking this in and thinking, okay, what, what can I do? Where do we go? I would say one, vote, two, vote, three, vote. Elections present opportunities and they present consequences. And uh, for the last six years and maybe for the next five to 10, we're going to be living in a lot of the consequences from the 2016 election. And that has nothing to do with partisan politics between Republican or Democrat, but it has to do with ideologies that are being brought forth and presented on the ballots today. And so this election, both the midterm election and a presidential election, is going to be critical in shaping uh, the direction of our federal government. Because Arnie is absolutely right. Without the federal intervention in many places and spaces, we are back at state rights. And state rights has never really worked well for Black, Brown, and Native people throughout American history. So we have to activate, mobilize, re-enfranchise those voters that have been disenfranchised so that their fundamental right to vote is protected. Secondly, I will say we need to hear from more like yourself, Joe, and more like Arnie, our white brothers and sisters who are needed to step into the, the gap. If you look at our voting trends, Black and brown people have consistently voted for equity, voted for progressive candidates, often Where the shortfall comes is the swinging white female vote and the consistent white male vote against those progressive and equitable uh, measures. There's something that our white brothers and sisters can say to one another that we are not able to say as people of color. There's a level of communication that happens that we haven't been able to break through. And, you know, in a very real way, these are the conversations that need to ha- happen. We heard this after the uh, murder of George Floyd, that these conversations need to happen in very personal spaces. But let's not forget, we need to continue that. We are not out of that George Floyd moment. So at a systems level, we need to activate and protect the right of vote to vote. At a very human level, we need to have these personal conversations wherever we are and make them personal. So I've been thinking a lot about what John Jackson said about really a challenge from him, white brothers and sisters stepping up to take responsibility. And his words stuck with me more recently when I was in Montgomery, Alabama. I was on a trip with a number of education foundations and education leaders. And as part of the trip, we spent a day at the Legacy Museum in Montgomery. The Legacy Museum was founded by Brian Stevenson. You may have seen the the movie Just Mercy or read the book. He was the main character in the movie as a civil rights attorney trying to get mostly people of color off of death row in Alabama. And this museum is a way for us to understand the history of enslavement in America and how it has fueled mass incarceration where we have the largest prison system in the world. We lock up more people in the United States than any other country. But as I went through this museum, I felt great clarity that We've had this honestly terrible history 
We enslaved millions of people. We separated millions of families. Thousands of people were lynched even after the Civil War and Reconstruction. And the policies and the issues that we're talking about in this book are not only backed by evidence that housing, neighborhood conditions, public health, school safety are actually three times more predictive of student learning. So the evidence is there, but also the moral clarity for me that this book doesn't give us all the answers, but it shows us a different way forward, really towards justice and reconciliation as we still try to deal with the terrible things that, that we've done to generations and generations of people as a country. The bottom line is these questions and issues aren't going to be answered easily, and that's okay. The path of reconstruction for our country is one we're still building, as was evident for me. The Legacy Museum issues are very much relevant today, and in fact, even more so. It's like history is repeating itself. But solutions are possible, and there's a way forward. So let's jump in and have these conversations and get there together. This is Our Children Can't Wait. Thanks for listening. I'm Joe Bishop. Our Children Can't Wait is a podcast by the Center for the Transformation of Schools in the School of Education and Information Studies at UCLA. Support is provided by the Stewart Foundation and the National Education Association. Elizabeth Windham is the producer. Julia Windham is the associate producer. Geneva Sum is the creative director and senior producer is Jay Woodward. Our Children Can't Wait is the companion to the book of the same name, Our Children Can't Wait, available now from Teachers College Press and Amazon. Our Children Can't Wait is produced by Windhaven Productions and Blue Jay Atlantic.